Amen. If you have your Bible, go to Luke chapter 15. That's where we have planted ourselves for seven weeks total. Uh, Luke chapter 15, we are in a series that is surrounding the prodigal parable. And uh, some of you grew up with, uh, with it being called the prodigal son. It's really the story of two lost sons. Um, I would argue that it's the story of three prodigals. Uh, the word prodigal meaning reckless, wasteful. And uh, if you've been with us for the past few weeks, you understand uh, kind of where we have been kind of going as we've dove into this story. The story starts off simply as a son, the younger son, because there's two sons. Um, the younger son makes a statement to his father that just simply says, I, I kind of wish you were dead. You know, what a, well, that's the best Father's Day card ever. <laughs> wish you were dead. Uh, and he, say, he really meant that by saying, I want my inheritance now. I want what's due to me after you die. I don't want to wait till you die, so just give me what's owed to me. And then he takes that and he recklessly, wastefully spends all of that on just reckless living. That's all we know that he did was just reckless living, just wasted his money, and finds himself basically homeless, He's taking care of a herd of pigs in a pigsty. He is craving what they're eating. He's hungry. He's homeless. He ha- is a shell of what he was and decides, I'm going to go back to my father's house and perhaps dad can get me a job. Perhaps I can find some sort of way to make it along in life. And as he is on his way back home, his father is already looking, waiting, longing for him to come home. He, wa- he comes in and his dad runs to him and embraces him and just begins to surround him with love, grace, and care. And we've been talking about that for the past three weeks, and now in week four, we're going to start shifting our focus a little less off the younger son into the older son. And what I've discovered over the past three weeks of talking with some of y'all is that some of you have never heard anything about the older son. Some of you have some, one person say, I didn't even realize there was another son in the story because we've only heard it preached about the younger one. And we don't talk about the older one because us older kids are usually the wisest, smartest kids anyways. But that's just me as an older child. But here the older son um, or the elder brother, as he's sometimes referred to, is, is in a mode that is very remnant to the Pharisees that were listening to Jesus tell the story. If you remember when we read in week one, Luke chapter 15, verses one and two, we had two groups listening. We had the sinners and tax collectors represented by the younger son. And we've got the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of the law, which were really the elder brother. And so we've got these two people in the story representing the two groups that were listening and getting ready to kind of dive into what is Jesus truly talking about. Let me ask a question. What's your favorite dog? Anybody got a favorite dog? I heard, I heard a boxer, a dachshund. That's not a real dog. Um, I'm kidding. <laughs> totally kidding with you. Um, let me tell you the best dog of all the dogs. Thank you. This is my daughter. She's getting married in a month and a half. <laughs> I love that. It's so cool. Um, let me tell you the best dog and my dream dog that I will get one day. I say that prophetically. Um, is the English Bulldog. Best dog. And his name will be Buttkiss. Named after Dick Buttkiss, former linebacker. I'm not a Bears fan, but Dick, Dick Buttkiss is the best linebacker. And so I've had this dream of having an English Bulldog my entire life. And so um, after 23 years of marriage, we're still working on that part right there. So <laughs> love dogs, love dogs. And I don't know if you've ever encountered a greyhound. Anybody ever? Enc- they're majestic, most of them. 
are majestic uh, because they're just sleek, they're muscular, they're, they're just, uh, they're amazing animals. But the only greyhound I have ever encountered personally was owned by a biker fam of uh, just friends of my, my grandparents. My grandparents lived down in Detroit and there's this biker family that lived just down the street, just loved them. And their names were Goat and Joyce. And Goat, I don't know Goat's real name, doesn't matter. Uh, but they had a greyhound and I remember talking to them. I said, I heard you have a greyhound, can I meet him? And he yells, Dirt, come out! The dog's name was Dirt. And so Dirt runs outside and Dirt is just, he's gray, he's gorgeous, but his nose, because the, the head is very, you know, long, the nose is bent to the side. And I'm like, why is his nose bent? He goes, watch, Dirt, come over here. So Dirt comes straight at me, full force, running his nose straight into the fence. And he sticks his nose through the fence to sniff me and he starts working his body around his nose, stuck into the hole of the fence. I'm like, that's why Dirt's nose is all like that. It's just, just how he lives. Greyhounds, gorgeous, gorgeous dogs. And the reason why that kind of came up this week, I was reading a book and it started talking about dog racing because that's what greyhounds are used in. They're used in dog racing. And if you don't know what dog racing is, um, the only time I've ever watched dog racing or anything like it was on Bugs Bunny, but that's a different story. Um, some of y'all remember some of those cartoons that are not very nice or good ones nowadays. Um, but I just re I remember the, the whole substance was the dog gets into the chute or the gate and a sound will go off and a metal rabbit, a fake rabbit, will go out from an encasing and go along the inside of the track and the dogs get released and they are chasing the rabbit. They've been trained to chase rabbits. And so they're running after that rabbit and they go all the way around and when they get to the finish line, the, the fake rabbit goes inside another encasing and disappears so the dogs can't see it and the first dog to cross the finish line is the winner dog. And people, it's a betting thing and people are placing wagers on that thing. Please don't do that. Um, if you win, please tie it to the church, blah, 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 blah. Um, but that's dog racing in a nutshell. And so as I'm reading this author talking about dog racing, he, he's from Australia, and he just says, there are two recorded occasions for which things did not go well or planned, as planned as, as should be, during a dog race. He says, the first incident happened at Shepparton Raceway in Victoria, Australia. The dogs were racing beautifully, and the fake rabbit was just out of reach, which is the way it's supposed to be, when a real rabbit ran across the track in front of the greyhounds. The greyhound running in third place was hankering for a taste of bunny and immediately changed targets. Instead of chasing the fake rabbit, he went after the real thing. And that live rabbit, also known as the world's luckiest rabbit, had massive timing issues but managed to get away unscathed. At least the greyhound had the sense to spot the real thing. A second incident happened at Bendigo Raceway, also in Victoria, Australia. The dogs were 30 seconds into the race when a metal rabbit, the metal rabbit had a power failure. And the first dog ran right past it and then figured out the rabbit was behind him and circled back and the rest of the dogs gathered around, around the fake rabbit, pushing at it with their muzzled mouths, trying to get a bite. And what happened was extraordinary. The dogs started to play. They began to prance around with tails high in the air. They began to wag and act like puppies, having a good time because they had caught the rabbits. <laughs> That's a dog race I would watch right there. When we get to this message that I've been prepping for for quite a while, today I want to talk about self-righteousness 
And when I think about self-righteousness, this story locked in what I think is the best illustration of self-righteousness because righteousness is that which Christ gives us without us having to work for it. He gives us by faith. But self-righteousness, self-righteousness is that metal rabbit that we chase with our lives, that thing that we go after, thinking if I could just get that, I'm gonna have everything that I'm ever going to want. But the problem with self-righteousness, it always stays just beyond our reach. It stays just beyond anything that we can ever do in and of ourselves. And we run our lives getting ourselves tired out, chasing something that we can never actually attain with our own work. Because with these dogs, it's all about running fast enough to catch the rabbit. And when they get to the end, they don't get any satisfaction because they still, they're without the rabbit. And I think to myself, how many church people we are searching after, instead of searching after Jesus, are pursuing Jesus, we are pursuing a self-righteousness. We are with our own works, trying to build up and to chase something, to become something that we want to be, instead of recognizing that everything you are trying to be, you can actually find in Jesus Christ himself. That's why the title of the message is Chasing the Rabbit. Self-righteousness gets us in this self-mode where we are chasing something that we were never meant to chase. Chasing a life, chasing a status that was never meant to be our pursuit. Our pursuit was always meant to be Jesus. And so Luke chapter 15, we're going to look at this elder brother. This elder brother who hears that his brother, he doesn't even know his brother had even come home. Nobody texted him. Nobody called him. He didn't read anything on Facebook from his dad with a new post. Hey, i just checking in. My son came home. But he says here, Luke chapter 15, verse 20. See, he rose and came to us. Excuse me, verse 25. My bad. Now, the older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing. And he called to one of the servants and asked, what are these things meant? And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he received them back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. Anybody have stubborn siblings? Oh, man. My kids didn't raise their hands. God bless them. His father came out and entreated him. But his father answered, look, these many, uh, he answered his father, look, these many years, I have served you. I never disobeyed your command. And you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Do you hear the, the indignation of this older brother? He is hacked off because something has not surrounded or applied or entreated him. And he said to him, son, you're always with me, and all I have, all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost, and now he's found. Do you hear the heart of the older brother? Instead of celebrating that which has come home, that which was thought was lost, that which he thought was dead, instead of celebrating it, he goes into this mode and begins to say, listen, the brother did this, but let me give you my resume. Have you ever had people in your life, they want to build themselves up, so instead of just introducing themselves, they give you their resume of why you should like them so much. 
This is the elder brother. So let's pray and ask that the Spirit of God would just do a work in all of our hearts. Because I'm telling you, when we talk about the elder brother, the elder brother is not that person that, I, I want to say, it's not that person that we just know somewhere out there that's self-righteous, because I promise you, if we're sitting here saying, you thinking, I know of the self-righteous people in my life, then you're probably one of them. But this thing of self-righteousness is something that all of us can be prone to. Let me repeat that. All of us, including the guy talking here, can be very prone to if we don't watch our hearts. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the day you've given us. I thank you for the sunshine, uh, just the beauty of a creation that we get to enjoy. I thank you, Lord, that we get to just come together, celebrate, whether here or online, and worship your name. And we get to bring you more than a song. We get to bring you more than just religiosity. We get to bring you our hearts, our lives, everything that we are, and give it to you, God, as an offering. And Lord, what my prayer is, is that you would awaken us to what real righteousness is, and that you would guard our hearts of ever being those self-righteous people that want to just chase something, to make ourselves into something that really leads nowhere. But Lord, help us then, Lord, receive your righteousness today and to live from that place and let our lives be a living beacon of hope, God, that points not toward how good we've become, but how good you are. So anoint our hearts and our minds, God. I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. We talk about righteousness. I mean, that means that we need to talk about different terminology. I don't know if uh, you've ever heard the term righteousness or being righteous. If you grew up in church like I have, you heard the term righteous but didn't always understand what that truly meant. So if you're writing down some definitions, let's talk about the word righteous. The word righteous, uh, it's behavior that is morally or justifiably right. Um, it's holding on to God. I love what Psalms 32 says. It's holding on to God and trusting him. I, it's so simple and it's so good. Holding on to God and trusting him. I hold on to who he is and I trust him. Why? Because I can't hold on to who I am because I'm connected to sin and I'm connected to brokenness. I'm connected to other things. And so my youth pastor, when I was growing up, he gave me the most simple definition. He would just say, Dave, righteousness means right standing. And it's, a, it's being able to stand or justified, not through your own work and power, that's self-righteousness, it's work and power that's done through the cross. It's what Jesus gives us, so when we talk about the righteousness of God, it's the ability to stand upright, so to speak, to stand right, to stand forgiven, to stand in grace, and it's not done because of our own power, it's done because of the work of Jesus. And somebody say amen about that. Because in the words of my father, he says this all the time, he says, he says, I shudder to think of where I would be without Jesus. Because I can't imagine where I would be without Jesus. What do people do without Jesus? And we're talking about righteousness. How can we stand without the righteousness of God? Now let's go to self-righteousness. Self-righteousness, we've got a few definitions for you. Merriam-Webster says, convinced of one's own righteousness, especially in contrast with the actions and beliefs of others. A, a narrowly-minded moralistic. Go to the next one. That great Christian website, Urban Dictionary, says this. Self-righteousness, acts, a person acts superior to his peers because he believes his moral standards are perfect. This moral smugness is condescending by nature and usually found offensive by others. The next dish, uh, definition is from the Cambridge Dictionary. It says, believing you are better and more moral than other people often expressed in an annoying or offensive way. Some of you are already picturing people in your brains. Let me warn you, the way you battle self-righteousness is not by being self-righteous. So be cautious about that. But I wrote this. Self-righteousness 
is my tendency to seek comfort in my performance rather than resting in the accomplishment of Christ on the cross. Self-righteousness is the tendency to seek comfort in my performance on earth rather than resting in Christ's accomplishment on the cross. That's, self-righteousness is about chasing the rabbit. It's my performance. If I can do this right, I can show up to church enough, I give enough in the offering, if I can sing loud enough and be involved in these ministries. And none of those are bad things, but let me tell you that there are a lot of things that aren't bad that we have made bad because we've made them the source of our salvation. Thus the problem with self-righteousness is self-righteousness is about you supplanting God because I can't trust what Jesus did so I have to do it myself. It's heavy and it's challenging. In fact, let me make a statement here today that where we put our attention defines our spiritual growth. And if our attention is on the righteousness of Jesus, we begin to grow, not trying to attain it, but we live out of that. We have a right standing, and we begin to live out of that right standing. Some of you are thinking, well, 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 what about having good morals? What about having good behavior, good life? That should come out of our right standing with Jesus. That means that when you're serving Jesus, you shouldn't be a jerk. Not a single amen in the house today. When you're living for Jesus, you should be a good husband. You should be a good wife. You should, be, uh, you should treat your parents with honor and respect. You should be somebody that follows Jesus and tries to live like Jesus, but that can't be done underneath your own power. That's done through righteousness. But self-righteousness, the reason why there's so many people that are shallow in their life in terms of their Christianity is because their attention is not on Jesus. Their attention is on themselves. And we have formed a Christianity that is self-centered, that we want to chase a Jesus that looks like me and acts like me and feels like me. And well, honestly, when we get to that point, we're no longer serving Jesus, we're serving me. And we call that, especially in the Old Testament, idolatry. That's self-righteousness. But what I love in the scripture is that when you're reading through, you actually see both righteousness and self-righteousness. You see both definitions. Let me show you righteousness in the scripture. The prodigal son comes home, the younger son, he comes home, and he begins to have this encounter with his dad. And you can look here, starting at verse 20. Verse 20, we're just gonna, I'm gonna lay it out here, make it a little bit easier on myself. We see this righteousness lived out because the younger son comes home and he is completely humble. He did not approach the father and say, this is what you owe me. How many times in the church do we approach God saying, God, you owe me this? I've, had, I've heard pastors say, as a child of God, you get to demand this of God. Can we just stop demanding things from God and humbling ourselves in the sight of the Lord and realize that God, God doesn't owe us anything, but out of his grace, he gives us everything. It's his grace. And so out of this humility, this younger son says, I'm just gonna go home and just be a servant. I'm gonna go home and be a servant of, of my father and maybe I can find a roof over my head and food in my belly, but this is so cool. And the symbolism and the culture context of this, because what does the father give him? The father, first of all, gives him a robe. Some of your translations say, give him the best robe. I started kind of looking that up and I began to realize, do you know whose robe was the best robe? It was the father's. He didn't say, go to my son's old closet and get some of his old clothes. Don't go to the elder brother's closet. Don't go to somebody else's. Go to my closet, get the best 
robe. Immediately, the best robe was the Father's covering. I'm so thankful that when we come to the Father, the Father doesn't give us anybody else's covering. He doesn't make us cover ourselves because we can't deal with our own sin. He gives us his covering. He covers our lives and he transforms our lives and completely takes us from being lost to the place that we were found, from the place when we were dead in our sin to being resurrected a new life in him. He covers our lives. And out of that covering, he gives, them the, he gives them the shoes. Oh, this is so cool because you can look right past this and say, come on, bring some sandals, bring some Adidas for this boy. I'm kind of partial to Adidas. Give him shoes. And that may seem like such a little simple thing talking about sandals or shoes, but the reality was this. It's the son was hoping that he might become a servant, but in that context, servants didn't wear shoes. And on top of that, a servant, because we're not talking about slavery, but a servant... A servant many times would kind of fall in love with the family that they were with, hoping that they could stay and serve that family for the duration of their life. And sometimes that happened, but a servant never had any promise for the next day that he would still be a servant in that house. There was never any promise of that, but being made a son would automatically say, you always have a place in this house. And so when he put, said, put shoes on his feet, he, begin, he immediately said, you came to me thinking you're gonna be a slave or a servant. I'm gonna promote you to being a son right away and so shoes on his feet immediately put him in a, in a different standing look what else we've got a ring i'll get to the fatty calf in a second a ring represented authority he put a ring on the finger when you see a ring on my finger you know that i belong to somebody else i belong to a young lady sitting over here on my right there, there's there's an immediately an identity that's there and what's cool is in this day that when you wore the ring of your father or the ring of your house that you have the ability to go and you begin you can make transactions in your father's name it's like having your dad's credit card in your pocket at all times no amens from any students right there wow you have the ability to act and to make transactions, not just in a marketplace, but with people in your parents' name. Immediately you begin to speak on behalf of your family because you wore a ring that had the insignia of your family. And then lastly, the fatted calf. What I love about the fatted calf is the fatted calf represented celebration and community because nowadays we can go to Meyer, go to Sam's, go to Costco, go to wherever and get a steak. In this day and age, somebody amen over here, in this day and age, the fatted calf were reserved for one or two feasts a year. And if they actually slaughtered the fatted calf, not only was it a feast that, that was about celebration, it was a feast the entire community was invited back into. Do you remember that this younger brother lost everything? And by his own actions and our humanity, we say he deserved it. He deserved to get what he, what he sowed into. But again, I'm thankful the Father doesn't give us what we all deserve. And when we come back to God, do you see what's offered back to us? We get his covering and not our own. We get celebration and we're given community. That's why I love coming to church on Sundays. I get to come together with my community and get encouraged. I love it. We get sonship or daughtership. We get a position where we don't have to be second class citizens. When you come to church and you're in the kingdom of God, I don't care your background. I don't care your status. You do not have a second tier relationship with Jesus next to anybody else. Just because I'm a pastor doesn't mean I'm closer to Jesus. I've listened to some of you pray. You pray way better than I do. Listen, it's not about second class status. We all have sonship and daughtership status with God when we come to him. And then we have authority. 
to walk in the authority, to speak into people's lives when they're hurting and to begin to pray for healing. When someone's going through chaos, we get to pray for peace. When somebody is discouraged, we get to pray for joy and encouragement. We get to act on the Father's behalf. This, my friends, is what happens when God puts his righteousness on our lives. It's right standing. This is what righteousness speaks. When I humbly present myself to God, this is what happens. It's righteousness, right standing, and we live out of that. But when I begin to have some sort of right standing because of what I do, instead of what Jesus did, we call that self-righteousness, and this is what we see in the elder brother. I wanna put up self-righteousness, because this is, it's kind of mind-blowing, the the mindset of of self-righteousness. Self-righteousness speaks these things, that my problems are always external. Verse 29, you never gave me this, or he doesn't even associate with his brother. The son of yours, that son of yours did this and did that. Problems are always external. Secondly, for self-righteous people, my comfort is always found in my performance. Verse 29 says, I served you all of these years. I served you all of these years. Father, you owe me. My comfort is always found in my performance. Number three, I'm critical of others, but I'm blind to to myself. I'm critical of others, but blind to myself. Verse 30, he devoured your property. Now, what's very wild about that is because when the father split up everything early in the chapter, he gave everything to both sons. Because So at this point, the younger son splurged, and everything else belongs to the older son. So the, young, the older son should have said, you're blowing my money on, the, on that kid right now. But what he's trying to do is trying to win his father over. And he wants to be critical of his son, blind to himself, and begin to say, listen, you should be mad just like I'm mad because this is what he's doing. He devoured the property. Number four, my judgment will always trump the father. My judgment trumps the Father's. Verse 29 through 30, I deserve what he is getting. And you've made the wrong judgment. This is what you should be doing for me. Number five, I am the standard of what others should live up to. Verse 29, look what I have done compared to everything that he has done. You can't compare it, Dad. Number six, I am actively aware of everybody's sin except my own. You know what he, remember what he said about the, older, the, the younger brother? He wasted his money on prostitutes and things. He was buying tickets for the Dallas Cowboys and other just terrible, evil things. He did all of this stuff. He wasted his money. And let me tell you how he wasted his money. Again, the elder brother didn't know what he blew his money on. He had no clue what the younger one did. All he knew is he was aware of other people's issues but not aware of himself. Self-righteousness says, God is lucky to have me. Righteousness says, I'm fortunate to have Jesus. Self-righteousness, God is so lucky to have me. I want to say I've known people like that in a church, but then they think I start getting self-righteous right there. But I think I've gotten like that a few times in my life. But righteousness keeps us in this humble place that simply says, I'm fortunate to have Jesus. Now, when I read through that list of self-righteousness, I'll be honest, the reading through the list itself makes me so severely uncomfortable. You know, like, well, you're the one that wrote it. Well, yes, but as I'm writing it down, I'm, I'm writing things down that I have seen in my life for the past 45 years. Because if we're not careful, let me be clear, if we're not careful, every single one of us are prone to self-righteousness. Every one of us 
can easily flip the switch Instead of standing in our own righteousness, we tend to want to make ourselves look a tad better than what we really are, and we chase after self-righteousness. It reminds me of that great Christian flick, Lord of the Rings. Love Lord of the Rings. And one of the most wild part of the stories of Lord of the Rings is a, a creature that used to be a hobbit and this creature has become the creature Gollum. Exactly, thank you. <laughs> this creature that has become less of a man, less, uh, less thinking, uh, in terms of sane thinking, uh, less kind, less compassionate, because he spent his life obsessed with a ring. Life's reaching for something that he was never meant to center his life around, and we begin to see this decrepit creature that began wholesome, began whole, began, he was solid, had family, had friends, had community, but he had chased something that literally ripped away at his humanity, and he spent his life chasing something that he could never fully obtain till he get to the very end. Spoiler, that he loses his life, he loses his future over something that he thought would promise him everything. And it's out of that spirit that this elder son begins to think, I have the right, out of my own self-righteousness, I know what I'm after, and because I know what I'm after, I have every right to tell the father how he should deal with robes and rings and shoes and fatted calf. I should be able to tell God what he should do. And that's what's destructive about self-righteousness, is that in self-righteousness, Jesus might be your example, he might even be your inspiration, but he's not your savior because you serve as your own savior because you trust in your own work instead of Jesus' perfect work. That is, Pastor, that's, that's harsh. It's true. <laughs> because self-righteousness, I, I would say it's idolatry. We worship ourselves because we, we, we love Jesus in the sense of being a good example to live by and he will inspire us. But the problem is we, re we replace him on the throne of our lives with ourselves and we start serving him and we trust in our works instead of trusting the work of Jesus. We trust in our version of grace rather than his version of grace. I've had people write me and say, I think you're showing this person too much grace and in my mind is, I'm not saying I'm gonna trust them with my life, with my kids, with everything, but grace is grace and none of us deserve it because the definition of grace is unmerited favor. It's undeserved favor. But self-righteousness is all about I take control. I take the wheel. And this becomes the idol we serve because we begin to worship what we can control instead of worshiping Jesus. You see, self-righteousness keeps us from crying out for God's rescuing, God's forgiving, and God's transforming grace because it depends upon the work of God and not our own. Self-righteousness pushes us to trust in only what we can understand and what we can do and what we feel and what we want. And sometimes, I'm just gonna tell you, the reason why there's so much tension in faith is because it's full of tension. Faith is that spot between what we know and what things should be. And sometimes there's a tension that opens up there. And there is tension that's going to be there. Well, that person doesn't deserve to be forgiven. It's probably true. Well, that person doesn't need grace. It's possibly true. But the reality is, is none of us can ever pay our own penalty of sin. That's why we needed Jesus. None of us can really truly understand forgiveness. That's why we needed Jesus. None of us really deserve the grace, but that's why we needed Jesus. And we have to keep our focus on him. 
And the problem with self-righteousness is the focus always goes back to us and our own feelings and our own limits and our own balance and it trusts in our own ways instead of Jesus' way. We want what we can control. And the problem that we have with this elder brother and this, this elder brother stayed connected to his father because all, what it meant was, this is how I get things. And maybe that's a shift that we need to make in our, in our own time when it comes to our way that we serve Jesus. If some of us think that serving Jesus or worship is prayer is all about getting things. But listen, if your prayer life is all about what you're getting, then you've totally misunderstood God. See, prayer is not about giving God our list of what we need to get. When we go to prayer and we go into worship, it's not to get things. It's honestly just to get God. It's to get more of him. It's to get God himself. And self-righteousness, we do things in order to lead toward our own intended desire, but what if we shifted things and we got into righteousness and we begin to go after God, not to get anything else other than a greater glimpse of who he is. Because when we get a glimpse of who he is, we begin to understand who we are. Self-righteous people, I say it this way, and this is a tough one. Sometimes self-righteous people are more committed to being Christian than they are being transformed by Christ. And that may be a tough one to swallow this morning. Self-righteous people, we are committed to a mode of Christian. Instead of being in a mode of being transformed like Christ, and you're like, well, there shouldn't be a difference. You're right, there shouldn't be a difference. There shouldn't be a difference. But how many of you know, here, let's pick on the political season, that not everybody who called themselves Christians handled themselves like Christ. I'm gonna talk to this side today, man. You guys are talking back. These guys are perfected over here. Man. <laughs> but what if we got back to the righteousness of God? And asking yourselves, where would we be standing if it had not been for the grace of the Father? Because if we ask that question, we would understand that self-righteousness, chasing the rabbit, doesn't ever get us anywhere. It, it makes us tired. We're running in circles, and what are we truly chasing? But with Jesus, we don't have to chase, because we see the image of Jesus here as the Father. He actually chases us. And all he's waiting for us to do is to open up our arms and to accept him and accept his standing, his grace. The younger son just had to step into it and accept it. It had nothing to do with actions. And yes, I do want you to act right. Yes, I do want you to act kind. I do want you to not be a jerk. I do want you to be a generous person. I do want those things. But those things are not what leads you to righteousness. Righteousness leads you to those things. And listen to the words of this father. The father's talking to his, his self-righteous son. And he says this, son, you're always with me. And all I have is already yours. You know what he's saying? All you gotta do is accept it. You're doing these things to battle and to get something that's already at your fingertips. It's yours. We don't perform tasks to be righteous. We perform tasks to, because we are righteous. We don't love people to be righteous. We love people because God made us righteous. Everything flows out of his standing. Everything flows out of his grace. 
And the beauty is when you go to the restaurant or you go to the beach, wherever you go today, is you don't have to go saying, okay, how can I go just to be a better Christian? Can I just get you to stop trying to be better Christians? I just want you to go after being like Jesus and letting the work of Jesus in your life flow out of that. Because I think when we're trying to be better Christians, I think we're just trying to check things off the box. Stop checking the boxes. Stop chasing. Just be. We be with Jesus and let him be through our lives. And it may sound really, really simple because it is, but it's still one of the hardest things to do because there is that flesh nature that just wants to take ownership and say, that's not enough. I have, I have to do more because that's what's going to make it better. I'm fine if the more is out of our righteousness, but if the more is because we think it gives us a better status with Pastor Dave, I'm just going to tell you, I'm not going to think better or worse because you've done more than anybody else. My worry isn't about the more. My worry is about where the heart is at and are you, is your heart with the Father? Because if your heart is with the Father, everything will flow out of that.